Podcastle, episode 312, for May 21st, 2014, Engine Song, A Rondeau, by Nathaniel Lee, rated PG. Hello and welcome back to Podcastle. I'm Dave Thompson, your host and co-editor, and today... We've got our second in a little block of weird westerns. Last week was more of a bloodbath. This week we're going a bit more fanciful. If a story about living in what could very well become a ghost town strikes you as fanciful. Have you ever felt trapped by who you are or where you come from? Like you're stuck in a rut thanks to your job. Tied down to the tracks or rushing down them without any way to break. Have you ever felt like you were becoming hollow and empty? A ghost town unto yourself, instead of a thriving city. Back in the days of the Wild West, American cities were made or broke depending on whether or not the railroad went through them. If the tracks went through, their success was all but assured. They had a chance. If the tracks passed them by, well, chances were they'd just fade away into the dust. Podcastle is right pleased to present Engine Song, a rondeau, by Nathaniel Lee, originally published at Beneath Ceaseless Skies earlier this year. Like I just said, the story is written by Nathaniel Lee. Nathan lives and works, unwillingly in both cases, which I guess makes him some kind of zombie, in North Carolina. He puts words in various orders, and sometimes people give him money for them. He's had stories published at Strange Horizons, Daily Science Fiction, and all three Escape Artist podcasts. His story, Dragon Slayer, was a big hit here for our listeners this past November. He also serves as the associate editor and feedback escapodian of our science fiction podcast, Escape Pod. Your reader this week is Bob Eccles, who's read many a story for us here at Podcastle. In particular, his recent reading of TikTok and the Gnome Keem still brings a smile to my face. Do yourself a favor if you like dark stories and pick up Bob's collection, Tiny Terrors which is now available at the Amazon Kindle store. Check it out. All aboard, and enjoy the story. Engine Song, a rondeau by Nathaniel Lee. I missed all the excitement the day the trains walked away, just up and stomped away on great metal feet to hear Eddie Hartford tell it. Trains ain't got legs, I told him. I had a pair of jackrabbits dripping on my belt, my hunting rifle on my shoulder, and a powerful thirst tickling my throat. So might be it came out harsher than it ought. Young Edward was always a sensitive soul, though, least when it came to slights against his manhood. What do you know, Bose? You wasn't here. I'm telling you, they walked away, and I dare you to find a man who'll say different. He tossed his head, hair flashing like copper, looking more like his mother than ever. The town seemed in an awful tizzy, that was certain. I could see little knots of folks here and there, whispering dark and rushed like the ghost of a river. I could also see the marks in the dust, enormous circles pressed in the ground, as if God had dropped his pocket change. They were six, maybe eight inches deep, even in the hard-packed dirt along the thoroughfare. If I was to speculate on what a train's footsteps might look like, I'd probably have speculated something near enough to that for spitting. And Eddie's an honest kid, for all his temper. He'd no reason to lie, nor I to doubt he was telling the best truth he could. But I was parched, peckish, and pugnacious, as Pop used to say, before he caught the train to Santa Fe, and left me and Ginny to mind what I sometimes ironically call the homestead, and I didn't feel like giving Eddie the satisfaction. 
Reckon I'll find a man and ask him, now that you mention it, I said. Get inside out of the sun, kid. I think you got a touch of heat stroke. Kid, Eddie shouted as I walked away, you got all of nineteen months on me, Ambrose Jedediah Tombs, and you're shorter than me for all that. Kid, you come back here and say that to my face. I waved a hand. I'd only be addressing your chin, Eddie, as you so kindly pointed out. I didn't push things. I'd already taken my cheap shot. Eddie's got the pale skin to match his red hair. He can't take the sun, and he knows it. Nothing irritates like the truth. That's another of Pop's little sayings. The saloon was dark, even with the late afternoon sun blaring in like trumpets, and it smelled like mildew and alcohol. I stepped to the side to let my eyes adjust. A man stands in profile in a doorway with his rifle in his hands, and folks tend to get ideas. Once I'd adapted to the gloom, I stepped out. Vic was behind the bar, one hand under the counter. I nodded to him, and he pulled it back up, empty. I maneuvered past the tables. The place was pretty crowded for the afternoon. Most folks usually liked to work as long as the sun was in the sky. "'Evening, Bose,' said Vic. "'I ain't seen you in here since—' He trailed off, likely realizing a little late that it might be impolitic to bring up memories of me dragging Pa a mile and a half down the road to keep him out of the sleep-it-off cell at the sheriff's office. "'You, uh, having a drink?' I tried not to grimace. "'Today might be the day to start, if what I'm hearing is anything like what happened. Trains are gone.' Pete Rawlings piped up from the next stool over. I smelled the whiskey on his breath from ten feet away. "'Gone and they ain't coming back. It's the end,' Jesse moaned beside him. He'd have had a head start on the drinking, I'd wager. "'It's the end of everything. It might be the end of Dead Mule, but I'm pretty sure the rest of the country will carry on without us,' I said. My throat was dry, and the thirst was on me good. "'Depending on how widespread the troubles are, I mean. Anyone here not too drunk or crazy to help me figure out what's happening?' Eddie says the trains walked away. They did, said Vic. He was wiping the bar down, polishing the wood in a little circle, around and around and around. Just stood up and walked, like they was waiting for the chance, like they'd just decided something. They had feet like barrel lids and eyes like searchlights, but they never looked back. They didn't even say goodbye, Jesse said. The saloon erupted into a dozen voices babbling, arguing, shouting each other down, and crying for what they'd lost. "'There's a town hall meeting tomorrow,' Vic told me, leaning over the bar and raising his voice. "'Once everyone's dried out a bit, had some time to think it over.' "'We're all doomed!' Jesse shrieked. Pete slapped him on the back of the head, and he fell face first onto the bar, where he just lay, wheezing and sobbing. I had to leave before I did something stupid, like throw a punch or ask Vic to pour me a double. Either way, I'd end up under the table, and no good to anyone. I needed to get home. I needed to talk to Jenny.' They say Dead Mule was founded because Augustus Felicitation Smith, who was trying to get to Santa Fe, was thrown to the ground when his last best mule fell stone dead beneath him, hit his head on a rock, and found silver when he rubbed the bump on his noggin. The mine was more of an excuse than a reason, and it never did show many signs of life before it finally petered out a generation later. By then, though, the trains had come. Tracks reached across the land like lovers' hands, straining to touch from the balcony, and where the trains went, there followed the need for coal and water, and maybe just a chance to stretch your legs for a minute or two. Merciful Lord, don't that bouncing ever stop? Dead Mule was what they called a jerkwater town, a place where the trains only stopped to pull some water into gaping, thirsty maws before heading on their way. It was crumbs from a table of untold savory delights, but a man can learn to live on crumbs, 
if crumbs is what he has. Now, it seemed, someone was looking to take the town's crumbs away, too. I confess, I can't quite nail down how to feel about that. It don't make sense, Ginny, I told my sister. It was dark out now, and we were burning some of the last of our candles, trying to figure things out, to make sense of the day. I'd been out to see the footprints, like someone had stamped a table into the sand. They led off into the desert, leaving a trail in the scrub almost wide enough to drive a cart down. Not that anyone was of a mind to do it, not with dark coming on and most of the men half-pickled. I thought I'd heard a steam whistle calling from out in the chaparral, wailing in the twilight like a coyote. Who would build a train with feet? Maybe they weren't built that way, said Virginia, tossing her hair over her shoulders. She's got a touch of red in it from somewhere in our tangled family tree. Maybe they weren't built at all. Someone's got to build trains, I told her. How do you know? She raised an eyebrow at me and passed me a needle and thread. Here, help with the darning as long as we're going to use the light. Because trains are made things. Humans built them all. You ever seen a train being built? You ever looked inside to see how they're put together? Love is a made thing, too, in fashion, in cities, in towns. But show me the man who can control any of those things to his liking. I caught her sly smile. She was baiting me on. The poor fellow who made her a husband someday wouldn't know what side to butter his bread on most days, I figure. Jenny, this is serious, she giggled. You didn't see them go a-galumphing off on those silly turkey legs of theirs. I shook my head, smiling despite myself. I mean it, girl. We're barely hanging on. If the town dries up under us, we're sunk. We starve here or the city. The city need us both alive. We're not cut out for it. I leapt up, the candle flames seeming to run after me, the way they flickered. I can't live in stone and brick, and you... I had an image then, like a vision, except instead of seeing the saints and angels, I saw Ginny, bone-thin and hard-eyed, sewing some stranger's pants for pennies, in a room too poor for even a window. There was a knowing in her eyes, in the Ginny that might be, and it burned me to see it. What skills do we have that they'd need in a city? You'll figure something out, Ginny said. You always do. Yeah, I said. I turned away and leaned against the window. The moon shone down like the headlamp of a night train rushing on. That's the tricky thing about trains at night. You can't tell how fast they're coming till they're there. The town hall went about as well as I'd imagined, which is to say we all managed to get out of the bar with only a few injuries, and those mostly to pride. After all the shouting was over, the upshot was that Mayor Gittlethwaite had called for volunteers for a posse to hunt the trains down and bring them back. The posse was to use reason if possible, and force if not, and would be supplied with firearms and ropes for this latter purpose, though what good a lead bullet and frayed hemp was supposed to do against 2,000 horsepower was left unstated. It was quite possibly the stupidest, most poorly planned, least likely idea I had ever heard. Mine was the first hand in the air. To be honest, I didn't know what else to do. It was either hair off into the desert on a wild goose hunt, or go home and stare at the walls. At least the first option would keep my hands occupied. I'll admit, I was a mite curious to see the trains, too. I was one of a largish minority that hadn't witnessed the event, as Mayor Gittlethwaite called it, with capital letters and a good long pause in front. We rode out the next morning, me with my rifle and Pa's shotgun slung alongside the saddle of my borrowed horse, Jesse and Pete Rollins, both blinking like unearthed moles as the morning light smacked head-on into their hangovers, John McGarra the smith, a quiet Swede who got on better with horses than people, Mayor Gittlethwaite, as the representative of the law, 
and little big-mouthed Eddie Douglas Hartford, whom I suspect came along mostly to show me up. The tracks were easy enough to follow at first, even two days old and in the sand, the weight of all that metal crushing down. They say a man hit by a train never has time to feel it, mass and speed multiplying to the devil's own mathematics. Wasn't much talking among the party, between Jesse and Pete nursing their heads and taking secret sips out of their personal canteens, and Eddie glaring daggers at my back, and at my front, too, when I took a mind to look his way. Magara never had more than two words to string together at a time, and poor Mayor Gittlethwaite looked like to drop dead of apoplectic dyspepsia. "'Nice day for hunting,' I said to him, juggling myself a twitch awkward-like on an unfamiliar horse. "'Might catch us a nice supper, even if we don't find no trains.' "'Doomed,' said Mayor Gittlethwaite. "'I'll allow there's that possibility, too. "'Town doomed, farms doomed, me, everyone, all doomed.' "'It's a judgment,' Pete slurred, already halfway to rip-roaring again. "'I'll give the man this much. "'What he set his mind to do, he did with a will.' "'A judgment on what?' I shouted back. "'Hubris,' Eddie snapped. "'Doom,' said Mayor Gittlethwaite. "'I dropped my speed a bit, and in due course came alongside Jesse and Magara. "'How far do you reckon they walked?' I asked. "'Magara shrugged. "'As far as they could, if they have any sense,' Jesse said. "'Who wouldn't if they were stuck in dead mule?' It's not so bad as that, is it? Hell, ask your pappy, Bose. I'd wager he's still walking. Jesse lurched forward, coughing and snorting. After a minute, I realized he was laughing, not having a fit. In defense of my quickness of wit, it wasn't particularly funny. Jesse cottoned on to my mood eventually, though I'm fairly sure Megara gave him a quiet kick to catch his attention first. Sorry, Bose. No harm meant. He licked his lips, his eyes like two small marbles in wooden cups. "'Hey, you want a nip?' he held out his canteen. I could smell the alcohol evaporating from where I sat on my horse. I swallowed hard. "'Guess I'll scout ahead a ways,' I said. "'See if I can get us a rabbit, too, or at least a snake.' I spurred my horse and tried not to cough on the dust it kicked up. It turned out to be snakes, but snake meat's not bad if you've got the knack of cooking it, and almost anything's better than trail food.' It wasn't the coziest campfire I've ever sat around, but at least it wasn't the landscape of frozen knives I'd been afraid of. The trail had run out once we hit the wilderness proper, a confusion of mashed-down circular prints all muddled over each other, and then nothing. Maybe they learned to fly, too, Pete had joked. No one but Jesse had laughed. Me? I'd seen the scrub pulled out by the roots and the dirt scratched in rough lines, and I'd come up with my own guess, which was almost worse. The trains had learned to cover their tracks. They knew we were after them. Shared misfortune draws folks together, at least to start with. The last of Pete and Jesse's liquor did the rest, though not for me. Never for me. No, but I mean it, Eddie was telling me, teary-eyed. I know I give you a hard time, and I won't say it's jealousy, but you, you've got so much freedom. I wish sometimes I lived with... But it's... It can't really be. And Jenny, I mean... He coughed, hiccuped, and shook his head. You understand what I'm saying? Sure, Eddie, I said. Pete was snoring. Mayor Gittlethwaite was watching the fire and looked almost calm unless he peered close at his hands and saw the knuckles white and creaking. Jesse was cheating Magaro at some sort of dice game. I stood. I'll go bury the leavings. Don't want coyotes sniffing around. I didn't think to take a gun with me. Not sure how things might have turned out, if I had. 
Didn't go too far initially. Kept the fire in sight while I scraped a hole and tossed the bones and offal in it. Did some business of my own while I was out there. Then, I won't say something called to me, but I got an itch along the back of my head and suddenly thought how pretty the night was, with the sky big and dark and empty, slammed down like a bull on the endless flat prairie. I had my bearings with the stars, and really we were hardly out of my backyard just yet. I went for a walk, to clear my head, as they say. Paul wasn't what you might call a great provider while he was with us. Too drunk to work half the time, and shaky with the lack of it when he wasn't. I used to walk the wilderness with the ghost of a living man stalking behind me every step. Sometimes I thought about not turning around. I had the wiles to survive on my own, but Ginny always drew me back. I thought of her as a lodestone, as an anchor in my worst moments. It wasn't really about Ginny, though. It was about Pa. It was about what Pa had done to Ginny by leaving, and what I meant to do different. A child inherits a lot of things from his father. All mine left me was his reputation. People who see you born tend not to notice when you become your own person. I'd spent years proving I wasn't my father, working myself near to death to do it, until I realized that no one but me thought that was anything worth mentioning. Kept on working, though. I kind of got in the habit. It was just a lot easier without a ghost over my shoulder. Now I was out in the wilds, hunting runaways. Who said I had to bring them back, though? A train knows where it's supposed to go, after all. A train doesn't follow the tracks. Well, that bespeaks a certain deliberate nature to the decisions that led up to that choice, don't it? If the trains could up and leave, why couldn't a man... Why couldn't all of us just get off our rails and go where we pleased? What distinguishes a man who only does exactly what his circumstances demand, who follows the lines and hauls his load and never even looks up at the big sky overhead? The preacher will talk your ear off about the virtue in honest toil, but you'll notice he won't be naming the names of any heroes crowned in laurels for working their asses off and not complaining. I felt a tickle in my throat. I realized I was awful thirsty. Then I realized I couldn't see the fire. Then the lights went on, and I saw the train. You wouldn't think a train could be so quiet. I'd have expected those feet to shake the earth when they moved, but here it was, looming up overhead, the big spotlight at the front of it, pointing down at me, pinning me in a circle of white light, and turning the rest of the night to ink. It didn't have a face, not really, but I saw the anger in every rigid beam and trembling wheel. I lifted my hands to show they were empty. The train lifted one foot, just a bit. I could see something black and spattered crusting the edges. Blood. Tufts of fur still clung to it. They'd learned how to kill. The spotlight slid away from me toward the camp. The foot started to swing forward. Wait, I said. The train hesitated. It's all right, I told it. I understand. I'll tell them. I lowered my hands, bowed my head. A man can only take so much, I said. I don't know if the train heard me. When I looked up, it was gone. I never heard it. It didn't even say goodbye. Something hit me from behind, and I shouted and kicked. Holy damn, I'm glad I found you, a voice muffled said into my shoulder. I swear to God, a train's after me. I can hear it chug-chug-chugging along. Eddie. I don't know what I'd do if you was dead. What'd I tell Ginny? I reckon you got a lot of things to tell Ginny, I said. I'll need you to be ready to help her, if she asks. What? Why? Eddie looked startled, boozy sweat on his forehead. I'll tell you when we get back to town. 
The hunt wasn't a success, as I'm sure you've guessed. I made sure of that. But it wasn't the end of Dead Mule. I explained it to Eddie and them on the ride back, but I don't think they understood me. A man can make a choice, though. If the trains can, I mean. When we got back, I hugged Jenny goodbye and reminded her where I kept the ammo and our few saved dollars. Then I took a long drink from the water tower and stepped onto the tracks. If a train can walk like a man, then a man can haul like a train. If he wants to. If he works at it. I burn coal. I belch smoke. I am plated in iron, and I will work as hard as I have to. I take a little longer to get up to speed, and I do work up a powerful thirst, but the tracks show me where to go. It's hard, but it ain't difficult, if you follow. Sometimes I wonder about them trains, where they got to and what they did there. I wonder if they kept their legs for walking free, or if they built their own tracks somewhere far away, in a land where coal grows on trees, where you're never too far from a cold draft of water, and you only carry what you choose to. It helps, if you've chosen it. At night, when I'm rolling across the empty plain, I can't see the sky. My neck's gotten awfully stiff, and it hurts to know that the stars aren't ever going to be where I'm headed. When it all gets too much, I tilt back my head and whistle with all my might into the dark. Sometimes I fancy I hear someone calling back across the plains, but I won't ever know for sure it isn't an echo. I can't leave the tracks. Not anymore. There isn't anyone else to do it. And welcome back. A lot of times in fantasy fiction, we're encouraged to be the chaotic neutral, I think. To follow our hearts and to place our own freedom above all else. There is something appealing about that without question, and I do like those kind of stories, but I like how in this one, it's almost a celebration of sacrifice. To do whatever you can to ensure the happiness, the future of others, even if it means setting aside your own. Even if it means isolation and loneliness, instead of fulfilling your dreams. I see this one as kind of a love letter to those of you, those of us who have made sacrifices to put food on the table, to put clothes on our loved one's backs, to provide via sacrifice. Whether you're a single mother or father, working two jobs, whether you're out a job and doing whatever you can to make sure there's another meal coming on the table. Whether it puts you on the rails or gets you off of them, this one's for you. Feedback this week is for Stephanie Burgess's The Wrong Foot, read by Renee Chambliss. This was the Cinderella retelling, highlighting that Prince Charming clearly had his eyes on something else if he had to identify his true love by her, <clears throat> well, shoe size, rather than recognizing her face. And the girl whose foot did fit the slipper was smart enough to realize that this was a very bad deal. Reaction to it was generally pretty positive, with a few reservations. Slick said, Wow, I may gush a bit, but this episode was a spectacular bicycle kick goal from the halfway point. You know it's done on purpose, you know it's been tried and missed by many other talented people, and still all the parts come together perfectly and it's stunning. I've really grown tired of the story from a different angle type, whether it's normal people superheroes or fairy tales in real life or whatever. But as I've heard and seen before, 
If a tired trope is handled right, it shines twice as bright. The narration was excellent. Subtly different voices for the characters, and to me anyway, voices that suited the personality. This could have been a miserable sad story, but the author chose a positive, powerful vibe, and none of the character motivations were weak or overboard. I did feel bad for the Marquis' daughter, since I didn't think she really knew what she was getting herself into, but maybe the prince will turn out to be a great husband. Varda wasn't so sure about that last bit and said, Overall, I really enjoyed this story, although I think my reaction to it was a bit different from what some of my fellow commenters experienced. For one, I had a tough time finding it humorous, although this wasn't a bad thing. It was just because the story did such a good job getting across the constant violation of this woman's personal space that I was pretty much cringing non-stop every time someone groped or poked or otherwise took away her bodily autonomy. It was a deeply uncomfortable portrayal and extremely well done. Given that, I'm going to side with the people who were concerned about the Marquis' daughter at the end. Sure, she's probably more cut out for the princess shtick in general, but by this point in the story, it's clear that the prince is more than just an ass. He's a sadist and a misogynist who has made reference to his desire to sexually abuse his future wife. Did you catch the part when he said he'd try to be gentle the first time? Huge red flag for domestic violence, especially once you factor in the power differential. No woman deserves to go into that kind of situation unwarned, and I have to say that while I was glad the heroine got away, I was deeply disappointed she did so at the cost of sending another human being into that situation, with no time to learn the truth and make an informed decision about her ability to cope with the ramifications. Unfortunately, this is also one of the reasons that there's such a big ongoing problem with domestic violence nowadays. The happily ever after exterior and the not my problem attitude that we naturally take when we briefly glimpse the dark side of men like this tends to enable abusers to keep on with their abuse for years and years. Yeah, she concluded, that's kind of a downer, but story-wise it was a small blip in an otherwise fantastic story, and overall I give this one a thumbs up. Well, thank you very much for those comments, a lot to think about there. Ride down the rail to forum.escapeartist.net and let us know what you thought of this week's story, or anything else you'd care to talk about. And if you like what we're doing, please consider visiting podcastle.org to make a donation. Your money goes to paying our authors, paying our costs, keeping Podcastle from becoming some dead mule town where nobody stops by and listens to our stories. Dude, how sad would that be? Any amount you can give helps, seriously. Donations and subscriptions of all shapes and sizes. Thank you. Well, that was our show for this week. We do hope you enjoyed it. On behalf of everyone here at Podcastle, LaShawn Wanick, Graham Dunlop, M.K. Hobson, Peter Wood, Anna Schwind, and myself, Dave Thompson, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back next week with a story that I'm sure is plenty weird, though not a Western, at least. Not in the cowboy sense. Until then, we think we can, we think we can, we think we can. See you next week. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. 
Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Our closing quote is from Will Rogers, who said, Even if you are on the right track, you'll get run over if you just sit there. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.